In our time of study of the Word of God this morning, we're returning to our study of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I'll ask you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We began to look at this passage a couple weeks ago, and we were introduced to that part of God's redemptive plan after the tribulation, after the seven years of the tribulation and this period of time is known as the Millennial Kingdom. You may remember that the Millennial Kingdom is that part of our understanding of the end times whereby Christ returns and reigns as King on earth from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. That's what we mean when we speak of the Millennial Kingdom or the Millennium. And as we said last time, uh, we here in this church believe in a literal and actual 1,000-year reign of Christ. We are, uh, in a theological term, known as premillennialists. We believe in a premillennial return of Jesus Christ. And so Christ will reign on earth for the purpose of fulfilling in all of their completeness the promises that God has made through the Old Testament prophets to Israel, to Abraham and to Isaac and to David, in all that he said in the Old Testament. All of the promises about a blessing and about a kingdom and about a place and about a throne. And if, we believe, if in the process of your own Bible interpretation, in the process of walking through the Scriptures and interpreting them, if one takes a chronological, historical, grammatical, and thereby literal approach to the Scriptures, then the honest and only result to such a study is to understand the thousand years as a literal 1,000 years to be future in which Christ will reign on the earth. The only way to come up with any other theological framework, be it amillennialism where there is no millennium, or postmillennialism where Christ returns after the millennium, is to take the scriptures in an unchronological kind of way and to jump some places in scripture from uh, being literal to allegorical or spiritualizing certain things. But if you take it literally, The only place you can end up is with a future reign of Christ on the earth. And in order for that to take place, Christ must return. He must return, and upon His return, as we saw last time in verses 1 to 3, Satan is bound. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So... As we learned last time, upon Christ's return to the earth, Satan is restrained. He is arrested, if you will. He is bound in chains and he is removed from the scene for 1,000 years. 
And as he is bound and thrown into the abyss, he is only to be then, after a thousand years, released for one final moment of deception. And after the thousand years have ended, he will be released and he will do what he has always done, and that is deceive. So that gets us up to speed, really, by way of simply review of where we've been in our study together. If you're still confused as to some of those things, you can either download the sermon from a couple weeks ago or get one of the guys in the sound room to burn you a CD about it to help in your understanding. Now, I remember, or I should say we should remember, that I pointed out last time that what we are seeing here, at least from the middle of Revelation chapter 19, uh, all the way through Revelation 22 are the final scenes of history as they are given to John by Christ. And they are indicated to us, as I said to us a couple weeks ago, by the words I saw. There are uh, ten final scenes, if you will, or final vignettes. And they begin back in chapter 19 and verse 11. And this pattern continues all the way to chapter 21 and verse 22. And that scene then in chapter 21, verse 22, doesn't end until chapter 22 and verse 5. So really, this takes us to the end. After that, John gives some concluding words as to this very prophecy of Revelation to all of us. And so really, these final scenes take us to the end of God's uh, view for us of His redemptive plan over all of history. And we have seen already the first four of these last several scenes we've seen the first four over the last several months as we have studied through this and we are uh, now coming upon the final six the first four happen are scenes of what takes place before the millennial kingdom chapter 19 verse 11 through 16 the sovereign ruler comes christ returns that's right on the end of the tribulation right before the millennial kingdom is is established on the earth this this happens and then in chapter 19 verses 17 and 18 you see as we pointed out when we were there the the great supper of all the carnivorous birds that god gathers over in the land of israel in order to eat of the flesh of the horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men those who god slays with the word of his mouth as christ comes and then in chapter 19, verses 19 through 21, of course, the massive slaughter of the wicked takes place upon Christ's return. And then we saw last time, chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, Satan is arrested and he is removed from the scene for a time. So all of that takes place, right, at the ending of the tribulation with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then in the millennial kingdom, in the millennium, this fifth scene takes place. And it begins in verse 4 of chapter 20 and carries us all the way through to verse 10. Follow along as I read. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead 
and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. When the chronological flow of the redemptive plan of God, as we are seeing it unfold through the tribulation into the establishment of the millennial kingdom of Christ on earth, Satan has now been bound. And his puppets are already thrown into the lake of fire, as we have seen in the study. All of their armies, all of those who came with them for that battle of Armageddon have been killed. And if we had to summarize the character of the millennial kingdom, we could summarize it with just one simple word. And that word is this, change. Change. If you want to want to have a, a word to describe the millennial kingdom in reference to earth today is change. Massive change. During the millennial kingdom, there will be changes to every part of life. In fact, just for a moment, go back to the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, because Isaiah prophesies concerning these times. And in Isaiah chapter 11, we get some indications as to what will change when Christ comes to rule upon the earth. Notice Isaiah, beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 11, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from its roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eye sees, nor make a decision by what he hears. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. He will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with his rod or with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist this of course is talking about Jesus Christ he is the root of Jesse he is the branch he is he's the one who who springs up he's the one who comes he is the king This is Jesus Christ he is talking about. And of course, in Revelation, we've seen even some of that imagery carried forward uh, by the way of the the rod of his mouth, the the breath of his lips as he slays the wicked and righteousness is uh, the belt from which he rules. But then notice in verse 6, Isaiah chapter 11 tells us there will be changes to animal life on the earth. 
Notice verse 6, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. Animal life will be categorically changed. The cow and the bear will graze. The young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. I mean, this is, this is massive change that goes on. Even, even those animals that we might even be afraid of today by way of the slithering type, even a nursing child, verse 8, will play with the hole of a cobra. The weaned child will put his hand in a viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all the holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the waters cover the sea. There's categoric change that will go on in the animal life. Animals, as they react and respond today, will not react and respond like they do today in our fallen world. When Christ is ruling, even though the world is fallen, there's categorical change to His rule in the animal world. And no longer will those that eat each other eat each other. I can't even imagine a lion chewing on grass. You throw a bushel of barley in a lion's cage right now he'll look at you like what are you doing you need to come in here get rid of the barley but not in the millennial kingdom but notice in verse 10 it goes on and says there will also be changes to national life verse 10 then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of jesse who will stand as a signal for the people and his resting place will be glory Then it will happen on that day, verse 11, that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, uh, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. It is saying, Jews, he's gathering his people all together. This national change will take place and he will lift up as a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. He goes on continuing to to talk about that all the way down through verse 14. God is gathering His people. There will be a a national change. Israel will will now have their promise, their their king on the throne, uh, their promised of a land that God has promised through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 15 and 16 says there will be changes to geography. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. He will wave His hand over the river with His scorching wind. He will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over in dry ground. There will be a highway from Assyria and from the remnant of His people who will be left just as there was for Israel. In that day they came up out of the land of Egypt. God is going to somehow create a way for His people to easily make their way back. Geography will be different. Animal life will be different. The nation of Israel will be unlike what you see today and what was established in 1948. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 35 because the prophet Isaiah even talks about plant life. Israel's Glorious future in Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 2. The wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Arabah will rejoice and blossom. Arabah, that's a Hebrew word for desert. The desert will blossom like, a, like the crocus. 
It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. There will be, the desert will not be like it is like you see today, just dry and filled with sand. There will be richness to the plant life there. Even the human body will not be the same. Notice verse 5 of chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. Even the human body, diseases will not affect the human body like they do today. Ecology will be different for the waters, verse 6, for the waters will break forth in the wilderness, the streams in the desert, the scorched land will become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water. I mean, this is change. This is categorical change at every level when Christ comes to rule upon the earth. So when we think about the millennial kingdom, we have to think about that. We have to think of change. Things will not be like they are now. There will be no satanic influence. Satan is bound. His demons are held in prison with him. The satanic philosophies are gone. Satanically driven theories of morality are at bay. No wicked systems of justice whole demonic world imprisoned with their leader. Jesus Christ sets the agenda for all the world. And it's interesting because all of this change focuses, uh, at least here in, in our passage this morning in Revelation chapter 20, all of this change seems to focus our attention on what John says about a new government. A new government in the earth in which is implied in the words in verse 4, and I saw thrones, rulerships. We've seen thrones in the past. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 4, there were the elders who sat on the thrones. These are not those thrones. The ones John saw in chapter 4 were thrones in heaven. These are thrones on earth. These are not the same thrones. But like those thrones in heaven, here it is apparent that someone is going to sit on those thrones because it says, and they sat upon them, and they will rule because it says, and judgment was given to them. If you're like me, you're always saying, okay, who's the them? Who's the they? And I think it's twofold here. I think it has a twofold answer, maybe even a threefold answer, depending on how you, you look at the whole Old Testament. First, I believe it's the returning saints that return with Jesus Christ. Go back to chapter 19 and verse 14. Christ is coming, remember. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, verse 13 says, and his name is called the Word of God, chapter 19, verse 13. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. I think this is some of those who are sitting on the thrones. In other words, in the chronological order and context of Revelation, the they here or the them here, the first, in a grammatical term, the first antecedent to these pronouns, the they and the them, includes the resurrected saints 
that come back with Christ, those who were raptured. This is us. All the, all the saints from the day of Pentecost until the rapture coming back with Christ. But secondly, I think it also includes tribulation saints. Those who had been saved in the tribulation, died as saints in the tribulation, it includes them. And the end of the verse states that they will reign with Christ. Notice in verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the whole verse describes all of these people. So this is the church age saints, you and I, and it's the tribulation saints. So the first truth that John unfolds here for us is a resurrection. There's a resurrection that is going to take place. We know that clearly from verse 5, but even in verse 4 it says, they came to life. That's a term for resurrection. And the resurrection so that they might reign, so that they might rule, so that they might have this judgment that is given to them. So now think about it as you think about the millennial kingdom. At the beginning of the millennial kingdom, all who return with Christ, that is the raptured saints, some even would believe that the Old Testament saints are included in that, in this ruling. And all the raised saints of the tribulation are there. And they're all given power to administer the divine commission of judging over the people of the millennium. Remember, the Bible tells us all judgment has been given to Christ. All authority is given to Christ. All judgment has been given to Christ. And in the millennial reign of Christ, the administration of that judgment, of his righteous justice, will come through these thrones. Not like we see today. We see judgment happening today through nations and those kinds of things and they're all heading in directions that they want to go here it is a central focus jesus christ is the one who's judging and the administration of that righteous judgment comes through the thrones which he has appointed for that very purpose you say how many are there how many all we're told is i saw thrones that's all we're told no number is given just the plural Many. I always think about this. God thought it not all that important for us to know how many. I think at least when I think about this for myself, I think, well, why wouldn't God want me to know? And then I think about my own sinful heart and I go, because I'd be thinking about what my throne looks like. You see, all God really wants us to focus on here through what John is seeing is this reality that there is this ruling and there is this resurrection that takes place of pre-tribulation saints and this resurrection that takes place of tribulation saints. Notice verse 4. He says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead or upon their hand. Right there in verse 4, you have both sides, or both halves, if you will, of the entire tribulation period. You have saints that died prior to the first three and a half years ending, and then tribulation saints who died in the second half of the tribulation. Because remember from our study what happens in the middle. 
the abomination of desolation, right? The beast, the Antichrist, sets himself as if he's God. So you have those who die prior to that happening. You have those that die after that happening. You have the first half martyrs. That is those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. In other words, those who had been executed during the first part of the tribulation, that first half before the Antichrist sets himself as God to be worshipped. And then you have the second half and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon his forehead or upon their hand. So you have those who were there after the beast was placed After he set himself up and they said, I'm not following that guy. They were martyred. Prior to that, those who held to the testimony of Jesus and the word of God martyred because of their faith. So you have both sides of the three and a half years in the tribute, the seven years in the tribulation. And John sees this entire group raised to life. Their souls, that's just a, a term for their life, their their soul and their glorified body. They're souls. We speak of souls that way. In fact, when I was an air traffic controller, we used to say during an emergency, when a plane would have an emergency, we would always have to ask them the question, say, how much fuel's on board? How many souls on board? We weren't talking about the immaterial part of those people. We were saying people. How many people do you have? Souls. That's a term just for people. John sees these people of the tribulation, these those who died, rise from the dead. That's what he means here. They received their glorified bodies and they are now reigning with Christ during this earthly kingdom. Notice then what verse 5 tells us. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So in chronological fashion, you have two resurrections that take place. There's a first resurrection That includes all of the saved. We'll say more about that in a moment. And a second resurrection group, that's all of those that reject Christ. The first resurrection is all for the saved. The second resurrection is for all the unsaved. There are two resurrections. And the second group is not raised until the thousand years are completed. Until the thousand year millennial kingdom is ended. Now, I said I'd say a little more about the resurrection, the first resurrection, so that we're not confused. I need to say a little bit about the word first. Okay? I want to give us some explanation on that so that we understand first resurrection. When we hear the word first, oftentimes we think of some kind of order by way of numbering. And while there's some indication that that's true in the sense that the first resurrection does come before the second resurrection, we can't think of numbering like that when we think of the first resurrection as an entire group. Okay? Within the group of the first resurrection, there is a sequence or an order by which the saved are raised. Okay? Think of it like that. The first resurrection is a group, and within that group there is a sequenced order. So when it says this is the first resurrection, it is not meaning that this is the first by way of number in resurrection as if there's never been a resurrection before this. 
The Bible speaks about the resurrection of the saints. It speaks of it, all of it, as a group being the first resurrection. But within that first resurrection, there is a sequenced order of how and when all the saints of the first resurrection are raised. Okay, I want to, I want to clarify this because uh, someone might tend to think that when the first resurrection, resurrection happens, when it says that, every grave is released and everybody is raised and everything on earth is emptied. That's not clear. That's not true from Scripture. So I want to turn back for a moment just to show you this and clarify this. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is exhorting these believers, these saints, in the church in Corinth concerning various Christian issues. There's a lot of turmoil going on in the church. There's a lot of unchristian activity happening in the church. And Paul is dealing with all of this unchristianness with Scripture, with truth. And one of the truths that he uses is this truth concerning the certainty of resurrection. The reality that every believer will, in fact, be raised. Notice in verse 20... He says, now, but now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So Paul acknowledges right out of the gate, and he reaffirms the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, know this, acknowledge this, realize this, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And this is a truth that every Christian acknowledges. This is a truth that even the Corinthian believers acknowledged. We know that because even over in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. What was that, Paul? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. So this... Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is essential to belief in Jesus Christ. And Paul affirms that. And Paul says to the Corinthian believers, you have acknowledged that. You have claimed to believe it. And it is a reality. Okay? Christ did not become, notice he says in verse 20, he says Christ is raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Notice some of your translations might say that Christ has become first fruits. That's not a correct translation. That's not even in the manuscripts that we get the uh, English Bible from or the original Greek text from. Uh, Christ did not become the first fruits by at some point after the resurrection. No, Christ is the first fruits by the fact of his resurrection. That's what Paul is saying. The reason he can say Christ is first fruits is because Christ actually rose from the dead. And so when we hear that term, especially when these Christians heard it who had a lot of influence from the Jews because Paul's the one who planted this church. Paul taught them those things from the Old Testament. They would have immediately thought of what the Old Testament said about first fruits. 
before the Israelites began to harvest the annual crop, before they would go and gather in all the crop that they had planted the year before, they would bring a sample, a first fruit. They would bring the first part, the first gleanings, if you will. They would bring to the priest as a thanksgiving offering to the Lord. You can go back to Leviticus chapter 23 and read all about that. This was the great picture that Paul is using here. Because the full harvest of all of the crops couldn't happen until the harvest of the first fruits took place. So you plant your garden, you plant your garden, and when the garden uh, came to bloom, you take the first fruits of that and offer it as a thanksgiving offering to God, and then the full harvest could come. So Paul says here in resurrection, Christ's resurrection was the first fruits of the great harvest of the redeemed. Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Christ through his death, through his resurrection, giving himself to God as the first fruit offering to the Father on our behalf. So Christ was the first installment, if you will, of the resurrection. He was the first part of the greater crop that would follow. And Paul stresses this in verse 23. In fact, Paul goes on in verse 21 and 22. He says, listen, uh, for since by a man came death, By a man also resurrection from the dead. So uh, one thing that will not be raised from the dead is your soul. Your soul never dies. The body dies, but your soul doesn't die. Your body goes into the grave, but the soul doesn't go into the grave. And so at resurrection, your body is raised and reunited with your soul in this glorified body. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Then verse 23, he He stresses this resurrection order. Notice what he says. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. So here again, Paul is continuing on this subject of resurrection as he's done through all of 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, Christ is the first fruits, the first gleanings, the first offering. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, each in his own order. Each in his own order. For those of you in the Greek class, the original word for order is tagma. Tagma, T-A-G-M-A, if you want to write it in English. Tagma means a series, a succession. That's the word order here, a series. So Paul is saying that everyone who is to be raised will be raised according to his own series or according to his own successive order. Christ is the first fruits, then those who follow at his coming. Remember, the soul never dies. So only the body is dies and only the body is raised in resurrection and the body is rejoined as glorified to the spirit. But each in their own order. All of these are the stages or the the order of the first resurrection. So the only resurrection left after this is the resurrection of all the unrighteous. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ and that happens according to Revelation chapter 20 verse 5. After the thousand year reign of Christ. 
That's why Paul can say here in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 15, then the end comes. The end when Christ gives the kingdom over to the Father, right? That's what he's saying. Then the end comes. What? When he, that is Christ, delivers up the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. You say, why should he reign that long? He, Paul says, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. When we go to Revelation chapter 20, as we see next time, all of that, death, Hades, and all of it is thrown into the lake of fire. So now go back to Revelation chapter 20. As Paul says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Verse 6. The resurrection of all the saints at the commencement of the millennial kingdom completes this grand first resurrection. And in the first resurrection, there is blessings for all. So you see, all the bodies still left in the grave throughout the world, all the bodies who aren't in graves, who are uh, have been mutilated or whatever, they're, they're still in the mind of God and in the sovereignty of God and the power of God in What is the grave? They remain there until the thousand years end. Why? Because all those who have rejected the Savior Jesus Christ are waiting for the final great white throne judgment that will come in verse 11. So not only are those of this first resurrection blessed, but they are described here as holy. Blessed and holy is the one who is part of the first resurrection. Notice, having part in this resurrection ensures life everlasting. It's a guarantee. Guarantee. Why? Because John says, notice, over these, notice verse 6, over these, the second death has no power. See, death has no power over those who are part of the first resurrection. Death is separation. That's what it is. Physically, it's separation of the body from the soul. That's what death is in the physical realm. Your body no longer is animated anymore. Your soul goes on into the spirit life, uh, and it will await the day of resurrection. The body and the soul are separated in physical death. But after physical death, for those who have no relationship with God, it is separation of the soul from God forever. Here John shows us through his vision, that the second death has no power, has no exousia, has no ability over those who are part of the first resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. Christ is, has been raised from the dead. And those who are in Christ, the second death has no power over. In fact, he says they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. All of us will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Those who do not know Jesus Christ by faith, those who have no relationship with Jesus Christ, will remain in the grave until the thousand years are over. Then they will stand before God as their judgment is pronounced, 
and they are sent to the lake of fire. Verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A horrific reality. So we have the resurrection of the saints. We have the reign of the saints. And then last, here you got the release of Satan. Verses 7 to 10. And I'll just read this. It doesn't take a whole lot of explanation for us. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. To gather them together for war, that's his purpose. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And then John sees it happen. And they came onto the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The beloved city, we know, that's Jerusalem. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil who, was, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. When the thousand years come to a close, God will release Satan from his prison. And Satan will do what he's always done. The father of lies will continue to lie. He will go about deceiving. And miraculously, it seems, there will be those, even during the reign of Christ, that will still reject Christ. So many, in fact, that John says their number is like the sand of the seashore. I mean, this astounds me. This is the final end of all things associated with sin, all things associated with death. Doesn't it strike you with some amazement that even with righteousness ruling, the sinful nature desires self? Listen, if you thought you weren't sinful, see yourself right here in a righteous kingdom and the reality that potentially you may be one who follows Satan. This will be the case during the millennial kingdom. At the end, upon Satan's release, he sets out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. It's just a way of describing from everywhere. In fact, the terms Gog and Magog are just terms for that. Gog means extension. That's what it means. Magog means expansion. So when John is writing this down and he's writing from Gog and Magog, those aren't places on the earth. It's simply to say Satan is gathering people from the widespread extension and expansion of the earth. From everywhere, from every tongue, every tribe. And he's doing it for this final showdown with God himself. You might even say it this way, he'll get people from every place. That just astounds me. It astounds me. And again, this tells us the depth of sinfulness. Sin is pervasive, folks. Sin's everywhere. It's in everything. Every human is completely polluted. And every day, every human succumbs to the wickedness of sin. Even 
Christians who have the Spirit of God living in them push aside that obedience that we are to obey God and we follow after the things of the flesh. Without faith in Christ and without life in Christ, sin will win the day. And this gathering shows that with clarity. They came on the broad plain of the earth, verse 9, and surrounded the camp of the saints, the holy ones, those who are truly saved, and the beloved city, totally engulfing the land that God had promised to Israel. Those people come and they attempt to unseat Christ, unseat Him from His throne, unseat all of His rulers, but their end will be swift. I love this. I mean, we would hope we'd get all the gory detail and all we get is this one little line, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. We don't need to know any more than that. Reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Doesn't take a whole lot from God to do that. Reminded when Elijah faced off with the prophets of Baal, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So too, these ones will be devoured from the fires of heaven. It's interesting, those who have been deceived by Satan will follow in his destruction. Want to follow Satan? This is your end. The devil, verse 10, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire brimstone the beast and the false prophet are there also remember that they were thrown in there alive and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever there's no better word to describe the fury of eternal hell itself than the word torment torment is their reward day and night that just means endlessly The same thing that the blessed man is to be doing, meditating on the Word of God, someone, day and night, endlessly. That's what we're to be doing. Here, in the end, Satan and all of those who follow him, the beast, the false prophet, and everyone else who is part of the rejection of Christ will be tormented endlessly. No intermission. No time for resting. There's no relief. Zero relief at all. Endless and continuously into infinity will be their torment. Torment, by the way, is used other times in Scripture. You just go into a concordance and find torment. Every time it's associated with excruciating pain. Every other time. Excruciating pain. In fact, we've seen it before in Revelation chapter 9 when for five months these beasts were released that came and tormented men for five months like scorpion sting. It's an interesting word, especially when you look it up in Latin. It carries the idea of twisting. Just take something and just twist it. Twist it against its will. So think about the constant excruciating, unending, continuous pain like being in a vice twisting you and wringing you out forever and ever and ever. That's what their torment is like. Never ending. That's hell. Those who know Christ is the holy blessing of eternal life in the presence of God. For those who do not, those who have rejected Christ, 
There's the endless, twisting torture of hell, separated from God forever. What an end. What an end. What a hopelessness for the rejecter of Christ. The beauty is there's no need to be there. No need for anyone to go there. Repent of your sin. Embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Confess Him as Lord. And you'll be part of the first resurrection. Next time we'll see the final end before heaven. Before we get a glimpse at the good. Next time the final judgment of the wicked. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for sustaining my voice. You're a gracious God. In this, we see grace all over the place. None of us deserve to be part of any resurrection, let alone the first. None of us deserve to be part of your kingdom, let alone to be ruling in some way under your righteous justice. None of us deserve even grace when we didn't know you, and yet you continued to shower grace upon us in a common way. You didn't immediately judge us, but you drew us to yourself. What a gracious act. Lord, we thank you for that. We acknowledge that this morning. We know that you have been raised from the dead. We know that you are the first fruit and that there's a great harvest to follow. We're thankful that in Christ we are part of that harvest. So, Lord, may our eyes be fixed upon you fixed upon these moments. May all of this motivate us to share with others who do not know Christ what is to come, what their fate will be if they do not repent. Thank you for the grace of the gospel that we've learned even through your judgment to come. Because of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.